You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. If you have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you do not have one, there were some on the way in, um, but even if right now, if you don't have one, you would like one, we're giving them away free this Sunday only. No, uh, we give them away every Sunday. But if you need one, raise your hand. The ushers will walk by, hand you a Bible. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, I'll read this and I'll just pray uh, and ask God for um, insight and help. I know this is uh, on, on Easter Sunday, these are such uh, important gatherings. I, I love the fact that we could, we live in a, uh, a city and a nation where we can gather freely and, um, and worship Jesus, the risen Lord. So what I'm going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this and, uh, and then go into uh, a little part of what I'm going to be reading today. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians and the, the letter actually to 1 Corinthians uh, for a while. We're skipping, skipping ahead several chapters of chapter 15 to talk about the resurrection, but we'll be back into it where we're at in chapter 4 next week. So let me read this. Verse 12, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have said, we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And this is, this is the, the sentence I really want to focus on this morning. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that's a Christian way of saying de- dies, those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, this is where it turns around, but Christ has indeed been ra- risen from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes, through also, comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for everyone who's gathered here this morning. And we ask that you would speak to us, that you would give us faith. Faith is such a gift, God. We pray that we'd be given ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond to this Easter message. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. We gather this morning around a very strange event. What the church proclaims, and not just this church, but churches all over this city, churches all over the world, that there is a man who was a, uh, um, uh, a Jewish peasant man who grew up in, uh, in and around Nazareth who at the age of 30, began a ministry and claimed all these amazing things and did all these amazing things. He was killed because he claimed to be God, and then three days later, he came back to life again, okay? Now, that might not seem strange here because it's church, but imagine you take that out to like Whole Foods or Trader Joe's or something, and you're just walking by, like, by the bananas or whatever, or, and you're just in a conversation with somebody. You're like, yeah, I go to a, I go to a church on Sunday, and we believe that uh, a dead Jewish carpenter um, came alive again three days later. I mean, it just sounds insane. And it, it is, it's strange. I mean, when you even read, as we were reading the, the text this morning, uh, that John text, it's very, even the, the way it's written, it's very strange. Like, 
These women wake up in the morning and they're going to the tomb, but nobody expects Jesus to come back from the dead. Like they weren't going there going, oh my gosh, like today's the day. I think it's like been, it's been, it's the third day. Like let's, I think he's, I think he's ready. Like you would go to, I don't know, check um, cookies in an oven or something. Like oh, is, he, is he ready yet? Like is he, and they didn't think that at all. They brought like anointing oil and balm and, and all these things. They had no idea he was going to rise from the dead. And then the tombs rolled away and their first thought was someone stole him. Someone moved him. He's not here. And then the angels show up and go, he's risen. They're like, he's what? What are you talking about? And they run back and they're going, he's not there. And so uh, the author of, we read John's account. John's the author of John. Okay. Um, uh, That was a free one. Um, So the author, and he's writing and he goes, we ran to the tomb and, um, and I beat Peter to the tomb. Like who says that? Who says that talking about the resurrection of Jesus? Like, Jesus rose from the dead, and I beat Peter to the tomb. Like, we were running, and I was there first, and then he came, he came and then he says it again. He's like, and then Peter came in. Who came after me? Like, I just want you to know. Like, I, I beat him to the tomb. Like, I, like, this is such a strange story. The whole thing, the whole account is strange. And one of the reasons why it's so strange and the reason why Jesus, and well, another funny part, I just saw this right now. Like, Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Like, that's funny. I'm just sorry. Like, if you're reading it, you're like, the gardener? Like, I don't know. I, I could you make jokes right now, but I'm not going to make um, jokes about that. But um, just, just the whole thing is strange. And a lot, of, a lot of historians say the reason why it's so strange is because it's true. If you were to tell a story about an account like that, and you get all these different eyewitnesses and all these, the stories would all, first of all, be a little bit different, and they would be completely random. You would put random facts in there. If you ever told a story about anything amazing or anything, if you're telling, like, I was there when, when the Giants won the World Series, and you would say random thing, like, I got this hot dog, but the hot dog was, like, wasn't cooked all the way. Like, why would you say that? Because I was there. It happened. I just want you to know. That. You would, but if you were making a story up, you would you would make sure that, okay, everyone get their story straight. Jesus came out and pigeons were flying and he was strolling and angels were beside him. And don't say he was the gardener. And don't talk about you running Peter. That's just weird. Like, you would make sure everyone's story, but because it's true, because it happened, you have a story like this. And you actually read all the gospel stories and they're all like this. No one expected this to happen. This is a strange story. And this is what Paul is saying as we read in First. Corinthians chapter 15. This is basically what Paul's saying. He's saying this. If the resurrection is not true, going to church will not make you a better person. It makes you delusional. If the resurrection is not true, you're not here, here today and you feel good about yourself. I'm going to church on a Sunday. I feel good. Like you're, it doesn't make you good. It makes you, if you, if you don't believe the resurrection and you, and you go to church regularly, it makes you delusional. It make, it's, Paul's saying it's a complete waste of time. If Christ has not been risen from the dead, this strange story of Easter, everything that Jesus taught is a complete waste of time. But he says this, if the resurrection is true, and what I want to propose to you today as a a pastor is that it is true. It doesn't make you a better person either. It makes you a new person. If the resurrection isn't true, we shouldn't be here. But if it is true, this church is not, does not exist, and the church in this city and the church in the world does not exist to make better people, but to make dead people alive. This is what Paul is saying. This is Paul's premise. And what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on 
these verses, the ones that we just read, a couple of them. So I'm going to compile them together, a little mashup. This is what I want to focus on. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. But if Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. That's what I want to focus on, keeping in mind the premise. Here's what I want to look at. Three things. The fact of the resurrection event, the faith in the resurrected Christ, and future for the resurrected people. Fact, faith, and future. I want to start with fact of the resurrection because I just want to lay out the facts that surrounded Jesus' death. Because, you know, we live in a, a, a city that's fairly open-minded, but um, I'll, I'll admit myself, I, I can't speak for everyone, but my experience is that though this is a very open-minded city, we can be um, skeptical, maybe a little bit cynical, especially around things that pertain to the Bible and church and Christianity. So let me just lay out the facts. I want to go through with you some of the core historical facts that surround the death of Jesus that even some of our hardest critics agree upon. Everyone agrees upon these facts. And what we have to do is, the question is, when we look at these facts, what is the most likely explanation for these facts? I mean, this is what science is, right? This is how science works. You have a set of facts, and you come up with a hypothesis. So here are the facts that we have to do something with. Here are the core of historical facts surrounding Jesus' death. Fact number one, Jesus died by crucifixion. That's a historical fact. Both secular and religious history records this. Romans were professional torturers and killers. They knew that Jesus died. There was actually a centurion in charge to make sure a trained torturer, a trained killer, making sure that Jesus was indeed dead. He was part executioner and part coroner. And he made sure by sticking a spear in Jesus' side that he was indeed dead. Next fact, he was buried. This is what you do with dead people. When dead people die, you put them in a tomb. Jesus was put in a borrowed tomb, and they named the man's tomb. If you're making a story up, you don't normally name names. Joseph of Arimathea, that was his tomb. That's where Jesus was laid, fact. Next, Jesus' death caused the disciples to lose hope. When Jesus died, they didn't throw a party. When Jesus died, they weren't waiting. They weren't counting down the hours until the third day. They hid after the crucifixion. If you read the resurrection accounts in the Gospels, everyone is shocked by the story of Jesus' resurrection. Everyone is shocked. No one believes him. Even though he sees, they see him, they don't believe it. He, he's resurrected with a new body, and he walks through walls. That's a trip. He walks through walls, and they're like, wait, you walk through walls? Like, are you, are you real or not real? He goes, give me something to eat. And so he eats fish. And it's not like when, like, remember Casper, the friendly ghost? You guys remember that? <laughs> when Casper would eat, it would, like, go through him, right? He would just eat, and it would just, that, that's not what it did. Like, he ate real fish, and he, and he digested it. And then he walked through walls. And, like, he resurrected with this new body. Nobody believed him, though. The, the, the disciples themselves didn't, didn't believe it. They had, they, first of all, lost hope when, at the death of Jesus, but then even when he rose from the dead, no one expected it, and no one even took some convincing um, to believe the resurrection. This next fact, the tomb was empty. Now, how do we know this historical fact? There is no body. Show the body, you end Christianity. That's all it would take. All you would have to do if you're Rome or or, or, or the Jewish leaders, all you had to do was parade the body through town and Christianity would have died right then on the spot. Nobody, game over. I mean, the Romans nor the Jews wanted Christianity to take off. 
They actually plotted together to get rid of Jesus. So how in the world, in that hostile environment, in the very town he was crucified in, where they just killed the leader, do these fearful small band of Jesus followers say that he's risen from the dead? How absurd would it be to claim that in the city where he was crucified, where they could have just went and found the body, where you can just go check, they actually proclaim that he is risen. Messianic figures like Jesus were around a lot during Jesus' time. And whenever they died, it was game over. You would move on and find a new Messiah, or you would just quit the whole thing altogether. Everyone knew this. When Jesus died, game over. One commentator said the church was down to one person on, the resurrection, on resurrection morning, Mary, as she went to the tomb. Game over. The next fact, disciples thought they saw Jesus. There were, there were recorded sightings of Jesus from both hostile and friendly witnesses. Next, the disciples were changed by what they saw. Now, we say that it's the resurrection event. The disciples were changed. The very city where Jesus was mocked and beaten and killed, the disciples, who only days before were hiding in fear, came out proclaiming that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead and he was among them. And then some, a lot of these gospel writers and even Paul starts naming names. That, he appeared to that person and he appeared to that person and he appeared to that person. So go ask them. He's real. He's risen. Next, the Christianity was born. This is a fact that every historian has to deal with. How do you explain the church? The church died on Good Friday, and it was born on Easter Sunday. This is, how do you explain a small group of Jewish followers turning into a movement that eventually took over Rome? You had Christians celebrating the cross. The cross. In, okay, you have to take this out of our American context, put this in first century Jerusalem, first century Roman-occupied territory, they celebrated, this church celebrated a cross. They celebrated an instrument of torture and death. Who celebrates an instrument of torture and death? You do, if that instrument backfired and became the reason why you are redeemed. That's the only way you would celebrate the cross. If you would celebrate the cross only if the cross didn't work on your leader. That's the only way you would celebrate the cross. Then, these Jewish followers, because the first followers of Jesus were Jewish, moved the day of worship to, from Saturday to Sunday. The next fact probably is a nail in the coffin. Jesus' younger brother James was converted. How many of you have older siblings? Raise your hand. What would it take for you to believe that your older sibling was God. Like, just think about that. Probably a lot. Like, okay, listen, die and rise from the dead, and then maybe we can start talking. Jesus had, old, had younger siblings, and these siblings were actually rejected Jesus during his life. One of them was James, but something happened. What happened? The resurrection happened. And so Paul even says in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, and he appeared to James, his brother and his brother believed. See, you have to, all these facts, and I, oh, we flew by them really fast, and if you have questions, I would love to talk with you after, but you, you have to do something with these facts. What, what do these facts lead to? If you are a scientist, what do these facts, facts lead to? What's the probable outcome? I would propose to you, Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, you might say, anything's more plausible than that. Like, and there's a lot of things, like the, his body was stolen. Those, a lot of those facts destroy that. He swooned. 
Now, he, didn't, he didn't die on the cross. He like he passed out. And he woke up in the, in, in the tomb. And he's like, it's dark in here. And he, I need some light. So he moved the, rolled away a giant stone, you know. And he just he left. And, he, and then he appeared and then he just took off. Like that's, and that's, that's not probable either. Some of those facts that we dealt with take care of that. Um, a lot of people think that, some people say, well, there's a mass hallucination. Everyone like dropped acid and they all saw Jesus. Like that's not, that's not probable either. You're going, but anything's got to be more probable than the fact that someone who died came alive again. Well, if you say that, you're not dealing with the facts. You just moved into the realm of philosophy. And if we're talking about philosophy, then God is a possibility. And if God is a possibility, then anything can happen. The dead can rise. Paul says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The resurrection changed everything. The resurrection changes everything. The reason why hundreds of people in this room are gathered here on a Sunday morning and we gather here week after week after week is because Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrection gives authority to everything Jesus preached. It gives validity to every miracle Jesus performed. It gives reality to every promise Jesus ever made. Without the resurrection, the life of Jesus was one man's insane attempt in gaining a following. Or worse, it was a manipulative, he was a manipulative liar trying to start a movement. Without the resurrection, the death of Jesus was just another sign that Rome will crush anything and anyone that threatens its power. If someone could historically prove that the resurrection didn't happen, I would resign and we would shut the doors of this church and we would all go do something else. If the resurrection didn't happen, coming to church to hear inspiring messages and singing kumbaya doesn't make, good us, make us good people. It makes us delusional people. We should be pitied if the resurrection didn't happen. This is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, if only for this life we have hope. If we have hope that church and, and Jesus makes just this life a little bit more bearable and that's all our hope, we should be pitied. If Christ is only helping us be better people and there is no resurrection, it actually doesn't make us better people. It makes us pathetic because we believed a lie. Jesus has no real power then and his teachings cannot be followed. Now why am I, why do I seem so adamant about this point? Why am I unyielding on this point? And the reason is because Jesus said he can forgive sins. He said he can forgive sins. Jesus said he could heal our soul's deepest need. Jesus said that he was true drink and true food. See, other things have the appearance of being able to satisfy our soul's longing, our deep needs of our body. But Jesus declared that he is the truer food. Jesus declared that he is the truer drink. He was the true and original nourishment that humanity was made to feed upon and be sustained by. He said that, and if he didn't rise from the dead, then none of that stuff means anything. Because he said he can forgive us of our sins. He said he can deliver us from the power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of death. He said he could. And if he didn't rise from the dead, it's all for naught. C.S. Lewis says that the kind of claims that Jesus made does not allow us to say that Jesus was just a great teacher. He has a very famous quote where he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg Love that. Or else he would be the devil of hell. If you read what Jesus claims that he is and when he's able to give humanity, 
If he did not rise from the dead, Paul says it means nothing. And if you're going, well, it's okay if it means nothing, as long as those teachings are good. And C.S. Lewis says, no, the kind of things that Jesus said and the things that he claimed to be would make him out to be a lunatic, like he was walking around going, I'm a poached egg, everyone. Eat my body. <laughs> he actually does say that. Or he's the devil of hell, drawing you away from the true God. Here's where all the evidence points. But Christ has indeed been risen from the dead. And if it's true, and it is, the resurrection doesn't simply make you a better person. It makes you a new person. The resurrection makes us alive. Second point, faith in the resurrection. Now, how, and not just faith in the resurrection, but more importantly, faith in the resurrected Christ. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. He says, If Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. The word futile there means fruitless, or it means wasted or unsuccessful. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is unsuccessful. Your faith is wasted on Jesus. When we hear the word faith, we sometimes, uh, it makes us think of things like irrational religion or wishful thinking or even um, blind belief. But everyone lives by faith. Everyone in here lives by faith. If you doubt one thing, it's because you believe another thing. If you doubt Christianity, and there's probably many of us in here that might doubt, that may doubt Christianity, well, it's because you believe something else. You believe in something else. You might believe in humanism or individualism or something else. An atheist, for example, doubts God's existence but pits his faith in God's non-existence. Even an atheist exercises faith that God doesn't exist, even the way that you say it. Like you would say, I don't believe that God exists. It's still a belief. We are all creatures of faith. So here's the question. Here's probably the most important question that I, that I, might, that I may ask this morning. This question surrounds the resurrection. The question should not be, should I believe or should I not believe in the resurrection? That's not the question I want you to answer. Should you believe in the resurrection or not believe in the resurrection? My question this morning is this, is what you believe worth it? Is what you believe fruitful? Is what you believe in, will that pay off in the end? Or is it futile? Or is it wasted? What do you believe in and what you believe in? I want you to think about this. Honestly, think about this. You might not get a a chance to think about things like this in the busyness of your career and schooling, if you're in school still, all the things that we do in the city, you might not have the time to think about this. Take, that, take the sacred time right now. What do you believe in? And how is that working out for you? Some of us have placed our faith in people. Maybe you've placed your faith in a man or men. How is that working out? You've placed your faith in women or a woman. How is that working out? You've placed your faith in yourself, what you thought was your identity. You've placed your faith in the pursuit of happiness. How did that end? How is that going? You've placed your faith in your job, in your career, your craft, your art. You've placed your faith in hedonism, seizing every moment. What has that done for your soul? Are you still restless? And when all that doesn't work, sometimes we even place our faith in religion. And every single one of those things is fruitless. 
they all leave us feeling used and damaged and discarded. Without the resurrection, Jesus would be another one of those futile things we put our faith in that leaves us worse than when we were found. Because it's a bunch of, bunch of empty teachings and empty pursuits if the resurrection is not true. But the resurrection is true. Jesus has been risen from the dead. And this is what it means. Who wants your used and abused, discarded, romantic life? Who wants your sketchy past and your unclear future? Who wants your life that has been riddled with abandonment and rejection? Jesus does. The fact that God moves toward us in Christ proves this. The fact that Christ came and moved toward us and died for us and rose again for our justification and his vindication proves that Jesus wants that life. The thing that you've been looking for your entire life and pursuing your entire life, that's what Christ wants to redeem. That's what he wants to pull close to himself. And because of the resurrection, he takes our new life or our life and he makes it brand new. He renews us. Jesus redeems us. He restores us. And this is a promise because of the resurrection. J.R.R. Tolkien said of the resurrection in one of his Lord of the Rings books, he described it as everything sad coming untrue. The resurrection is everything sad coming untrue. And this is how Paul puts it. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. If you are not in Christ this morning, if you go, I, I'm, not, I'm, not really, I'm not a Christian, I'm not in Christ today, the scriptures say that you are dead. Your representative is Adam, who was created in beauty and perfection, but chose a life apart from God, and being cut off from God means death. But there's a way back in. For those who are alive, your representative is Jesus Christ. See, it's our identification with one person that determines our entire fate. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Whoever's in Adam will die. If you are in Christ, you are made alive. When we identify with Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection, this is what the, this is what the practice of baptism is. His life, his death, burial, and his resurrection, we are made new. We are made new. We are made into a completely different creature. C.S. Lewis has a great quote on this in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce a better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better. It's like turning a horse into a winged unicorn. Okay, he might not have said unicorn. He actually said creature. I, may, I said unicorn, but I, I think he would approve of the edit. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just going to go out on a limb. I think that he, he might approve of that edit. Like, this is what he's saying. This is basically what he's saying, okay? He does actually say something like this in Narnia, by the way. Jesus doesn't make good people better or bad people good. He makes dead people alive, and you're completely different. You're like unicorn pegasus or something like that. You're completely new. You're not like a horse that's just a better horse. You're transformed. You're going, you, you get to go places you've never gone. You get life abundant. This is, what, this is what happens in Christ. You're made a new creation, brand new, completely new. This is what Jesus does. Lastly, 
Not just that, but he gives us a future. There's a future for the resurrection people. I don't talk about this much, but I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I've been thinking about heaven a lot. I haven't done, we haven't done a teaching on heaven in this church yet. Um, one's brewing, I think. Our, what Jesus does isn't just for this life. Paul actually says, if it's just for this life, man, you guys, you guys are pitiful. Don't you realize that you're a part of something way bigger? Paul even appeals to the church in Corinth by saying, don't you know that, why, why are you guys arguing among each other and then, you guys, and then you guys start suing each other? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? Like you, there's an eternal perspective here that you're missing out on. I've been thinking about heaven a lot. One of my best friends just lost his baby girl to cancer. And the night that she died, um, her mom and dad kissed her. They got to be with her. They reminded her about Jesus. And my friend said to his daughter, I love you, and mommy loves you, and Jesus loves you. And tonight, Jesus might want to come and talk with you. I want you to know that he loves you, and it's okay to go with him. And her name is Daisy Love. And Daisy Love said, I know, Daddy. I'm having really good dreams tonight. And they kissed her, and they prayed over her. And then a few hours later, she said her last words before she died. And her last words were, that's awesome. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. And then she went to be with the Lord. See, there's been a, a, a large wave of books recently about like these near-death experiences. They've been written year over year, and they actually have been making the New York Times bestseller list over and over again. Some of these books are on the bookshelves today. One of them I, I read recently during this whole, um, during, thir- during Daisy when she went to be with the Lord, was called Proof of Heaven. And it was basically a, a skeptic neurosurgeon wrote about his near-death experiences and then how he went to heaven he can prove that heaven exists. I think what we all really want to know is what is heaven like? Is there life beyond the grave? Is there something beyond? What we're told in Revelation chapter 21 is that there is a heaven and what heaven will be like. There the writer in Revelation, John, says the heaven is a place of perfection. That heaven is a place of presence, God's presence, God's perfect presence. Now, when it describes perfection, it says that God will wipe every tear from their eyes. You might have heard this verse. It's from Revelation. He will wipe every tear from their eyes once and for all because there will be no more pain and there will be no more death and there will be no more mourning. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain. It's perfection. So whenever you step into a church, you might be overwhelmed with these giant meta questions. You might wrestle with them when someone invites you to church or talks about God. Like, wait, well, what about suffering? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do little girls get cancer? Why is there suffering? If God is real, why is there suffering? There are things that threaten our bodies. There are things that threaten our world. There are things that threaten our lives. And we have the hardest time accepting those things, don't we? No one just goes, hey, that's just the way it is. Like, things happen. Something in us gets angry. We know that that's not the way it's supposed to be. They anger us, simple things. Something like even not, not to be able to eat something you love makes you angry. Some of us, even the heaviest things, like a beautiful little girl dying of cancer. And we can't accept them deep down because we know they're not the way life was supposed to be. See, we all have this collective memory of perfection. 
You and I were built for perfection. In the book, Proof of Heaven, the author describes what he saw when he said he saw heaven. He says this. It was like when your parents take you back to a place where you spent time as a very young child. You don't know the place, or at least you think you don't. But as you look around, something pulls at you, and you realize that a part of yourself, a part way deep down, does remember the place after all, and is rejoicing at being back there again. C.S. Lewis once described heaven as that remote music we're all born remembering. See, if you don't believe in heaven or if you don't believe in eternity, you believe in heaven and you believe in eternity because there's something deep down in us that says all the wrongs in the world need to be made right. The whole human race has a deep memory of a paradise lost, a faint but powerful awareness that there must be something better, a different world that we were designed for. And that's why we hate cancer so much and suffering we hate suffering. And we look around and when we say truthfully, profoundly, but simply say, that's not right. That's not the way it was meant to be. And that's why things are disappointing to us. This is why we cry. And I would suggest what the Bible claims, it's because we know what it was like with God. Somewhere deep down, we know. And those majestic sunrises and those moments in life that take your breath away when you're around those you love, we know that that's what we were made for, and we love those times. We remember what it was like before Adam when we all died and we all turned from God. And we've been trying to get back there ever since. There is a way back. Jesus said this after one of his friends died. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus gets us back in. This is what the resurrection proclaims. I stepped into death. Death could not hold me. I stepped back out. Who wants to follow me? You will have the power over sin, death, and the devil. You will have a new life and life eternal. Not just life now. Not just true life, but true life forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, if only for in this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But here's the deal, church. We don't just have hope for this life. We have hope for the next. We have hope when God will make everything new. We have a hope that when we die, we will never die. And this is why Paul will go on to say, just a couple verses later in chapter 15, when the perishable, our bodies, have been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Paul is taunting death. He's like, what, what are you going to do? Like, my Savior, you took him and then he bursted out. He came out of the grave. You can't hold him. And he's in me. And because of that, where's your victory? Where's your sting? The sting of death is sin from Adam. But the power of sin is law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have hope in this life because of the resurrection. And we have hope in the next life because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, everything that Jesus said is true. Every promise that he said is true. All of it is true. At Daisy's memorial, I got to speak, and I, I shared a little bit of this. 
And I close with a quote, and I want to close with it this morning because I think this captures well. Life now. No fear in life and no fear in death. D.L. Moody, a famous evangelist, said this once. Soon you will read in the newspaper that I am dead. Do not believe it for a moment. I will be more alive than ever before. That's the hope of the resurrection. This is the hope that we have in Jesus. And what I want to do as we close, I want you to invite you to receive, to accept Jesus Christ this morning, to place your faith in him, to place your trust in him. See, God has not stayed away from us. He has not stayed far from us. Even when we feel like that sometimes, in Christ, in the incarnation, through his life and his teachings, Jesus' death, his burial and resurrection, it proves that he, just, he was not just an ordinary person. He was not just some prophet. He was way more than that. Jesus was the Savior of the world. If you have never prayed to receive Christ, the Lord, as Savior and Lord, I want to invite you to do that now. I want to invite you this morning to place your trust in Christ. To say to Jesus something like this. And I'm not going to lead you in a prayer because I really want, the, I, I really want to just be the thing that you're going to pray to God. So as we close in prayer, I want to sit quiet for a second. And I want to lead you in the, the outline of a prayer. I'm not going to give you a prayer. Don't repeat after me or anything like that. What I want to do is this. I want to ask you from a, a heart response, where you're at right now, to respond to God. To respond to his love, to respond to his grace. Let's pray. God, right now, I believe that you, through just the, the truth of you being proclaimed this morning, it might even be been way before this morning that you were calling people to yourself. I believe that, you're, that you want to save. You want to save. You want to pull people from Adam into Christ. And so I ask God that you would draw people to yourself right now. Church, in a, a posture of, of like humility before God right now, if you've never received Jesus as the Savior and Lord, of the universe. Not just your Savior and Lord, but the Savior and Lord. I want you to pray. And it could be something simple, just like, I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I trust in you. Turn, spend some time praying that. Turning from your sin. Turning to Jesus. I pray, I, I know, God, that you're Savior and Lord of the universe. Not just your Savior and Lord, but the Savior and Lord. I want you to pray. And it could be something simple, just like, I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I trust in you. Turn, spend some time praying that. Turning from your sin. Turning to Jesus.
Savior and Lord of the universe. Not just your Savior and Lord, but the Savior and Lord. I want you to pray. And it could be something simple, just like, I believe in you. I believe in who you are. I trust in you. Turn, spend some time praying that, turning from your sin, turning to Jesus. Jesus.